to the Voice of Islam Radio. Auzubillah minash shaitanir rajeem Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim In the name of Allah the gracious the ever merciful Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you Today is Monday the 13th of February 2023 The time is 7.03am and you're listening to your host Tani Alzea joined by Imam Usman Manan live from the breakfast studios uh, here in South London. We shall be discussing two topics today. The first one is about a call for new taxes on super-rich after 1% are believed to have pocketed two-thirds of all new wealth. So that's something that we will start discussing at 7.30 a.m. today. And then the second topic is about the Islamic way of protesting. So, um, this is something very topical. Uh, protests are very common these days of all kinds. What's the right way of protesting? What's the Islamic way of protesting? So that's something that we shall discuss uh, from 8.15 onwards. So those are the two topics of the day. We shall be live right until 9 a.m. So please do stay tuned with us. As is the norm, we start with the headlines appearing in the newspapers today. So this morning's papers um, uh, make up uh, a mix of stories with no one story dominating. The, time, uh, the Times reports that water firms are to be spared the threat of 250 million fines. It says Environment Secretary Teresa Coffey believes that fines are disproportionate. The paper's front page also reports that dozens of Tory supporters of Liz Truss will submit a tax-cutting manifesto to Chancellor Jeremy Hunt before the budget. The I newspaper leads with Sunak facing Tory rebellion over sewage in UK rivers. It says he faces defeat in the House of Lords over his bid to scrap clean water regulations. A number of the front, uh, the paper's front pages have focused on the issue in recent days. The Financial Times reports that dozens of Chinese military balloons uh, have crossed Taiwan's airspace in recent years. It attributes this to a senior Taiwanese official who said the balloons come very frequently, the last one just a few weeks ago. The Daily Telegraph also leads with so-called spy balloons, reporting that the UK will conduct a security review in the wake of the incursion of spy balloons into Western airspace. Under the headline, It's a Murky Business, the Metro leads with pressure on BBC chairman Richard Sharp after a critical report from MPs into his appointment at the corporation. The Guardian leads on a Labour Party analysis of government spending, 
reporting that spending on government-issued credit cards has risen by 70% since, since 2010. It, its front page also carries a story and about pressure on BBC chairman Richard Sharp. Mr. Sharp also believes he acted appropriately, he says. A bid... A bit of a different take on the nurses' strike on the front page of Daily Mirror with the paper speaking to workers who suffer from long COVID. NHS staff sick with long COVID now face losing their jobs as story ministers cut off support, according to the paper. The healthcare story also makes the front of Daily Express. Desperate pensioners are struggling to get the crucial support they need as Britain's care crisis deepens, it reports. Like a number of today's papers, its front page carries an image of actor Jodie Comer, who also among who, who was among the winners at the first gender gender neutral What's On Stage Awards on Sunday. Under the headline "Thanks a Million," the Sun leads with its campaign to raise money for victims of the earthquake in Turkey and Syria. It reports Prime Minister Rishi Sunak has praised its readers after they raised one million pounds. The Daily. Mail leads with comments from Lord David Frost, who warns, who warns a plot to undermine Brexit may be underway after leading Remainers had a secret summit on EU relations. It follows a story in The Observer over the weekend about Remainers and Brexiters, including Michael Gove, meeting, the, meeting to discuss Brexit. So those were the headlines in the newspapers today. We shall now take a quick break, and when we come back, we shall continue to delve into what's appearing in the newspapers today. A reminder of the two topics that we shall be covering starting 7.30 a.m. So the first topic is about a call for new taxes on super-rich after 1% pocket two-thirds of all new wealth. And the second topic, which we shall start at 8.15 a.m., is about the Islamic way of protesting. So what is the Islamic way of protesting and what is the right way of protesting according to Islam? Please do join us in both of these discussions by calling us at 0208-687-7878. You can also tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. We shall be back right after a quick break. أشهد أن لا إله إلا الله أشهد أن محمدا listening to the voice of islam radio al-latif 
Hazrat Yusuf, on whom be peace, mentions God's favors by virtue of his attribute of Al-Latif, the benignant, by recalling how God was his friend, while his brothers conspired against him. According to the lexicon, Latif is a kind of gracious being, one who is benevolent to his creation, as well as one who is aware of all subtle and incomprehensible matters. Al-Latif is one who illuminates hearts, who makes arrangements for physical and spiritual nourishment, and who offers his friendship to his servants during times of tribulation. The promised Messiah on whom be peace said that sight, intellect, and consciousness cannot reach God. It is impossible to try and see Him. He is Al-Latif. He is unseen and illuminates the person he reaches to such an extent that the person speaks for him, a divine honor mostly granted upon the prophets of God. God is the knower of all subtleties and is all aware. He is of those who seek him and raises prophets to be their guide to him. His light is manifested through his prophets as they spread the light of unity of God all around them. Among all the prophets of God, the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, disseminated this light the most. For it was he who had the most perfect perception of God, and it was he who was completely imbued in the colors of God. In the current age, because of his perfect and complete devotion, and subservience to the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. God has granted this distinct honor to the promised Messiah, on whom be peace. It is the attribute of Al-Latif that makes God the friend of his servants in all trials and tribulations. Just as the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, continuously prayed for the reformation of his Ummah, as well as his opponents, as only Al-Latif can be the guidance and reformation. Al-Latif is the supporter of the victim, the voice of the oppressed. Al-Latif is that companion whose loyalty never fails to astound. It is he who fills hearts with his magnificent light. Then should we not be grateful for the mercy of Al-Latif? Allahu Akbar Allahu Akbar Allahu Akbar Allahu Akbar أشهد أن لا إله إلا الله أشهد أن محمدا رسول 
listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Welcome back to this live edition of the Breakfast Show from South London Studios of Voice of Islam. You're listening to Daniel Zia and Imam Usman Manan. Uh, and we shall be talking about two stories today. So the first one starting at 7.30 a.m. is about a call for new taxes on super rich after 1% are believed to have pocketed two-thirds of all new wealth. And the second one starting at 8.15 a.m. is about the Islamic way of protesting. So what is the correct way of protesting in Islam and what does Islam prescribe in that respect? So those are the two topics. Please do join us in these discussions. You can call us at 208 Six eight seven seven eight seven eight. You can also tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. We are still talking about the news headlines um, or important news stories appearing in the newspapers this morning. Imam Anan, anything that um, caught your eye this morning? Um, yes, there's one uh, rather positive story about the earthquake mm-hmm. in Syria. So it, it has been almost a week since that deadly earthquake in, the, in the, on the border of Turkey and Syria, right. uh, which killed thousands. But uh, amid all this despair, there is um, there, there have been many stories. Um, but one of them, uh, a story of miracle, uh, is of Nekla Kamus, uh, who is a 27-year-old mother of two, and who just um, um, gave birth to a newborn baby. Um, and days after... <clears throat> the earthquake hit and uh, it's a very shocking story the earthquake hit and uh, obviously uh, she was buried under all, all the rubble and uh, she describes her um feelings and what 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 she saw so immediately when when the earthquake hits she's under all this um, rubble and it's pitch dark she can't see anything um she can't uh, feel anything because she's hurt and uh, she has her newborn baby with her. Right. Um, she mentions that she she was relieved as like immediately after the earthquake, she checked on her child and he, she could feel him breathing, but he wasn't talking or anything. She could feel him breathing. So whenever he would uh, wake up, he would start crying. She would um, give her some some uh, breast milk, try to um, quieten down. Um, she also. So she she was in there for about ninety hours, you know, roughly. I mean, three four days, almost four days, and she also tried to um, because of the hunger try to drink her own milk, which did not work. Um, she fed the baby, but after ninety hours, uh, she heard someone outside. Um, I think dogs barking, and um, she heard she heard some footsteps before that. So and she said that I, I saved my energy because they were really far. So. So imagine how weak you are at that moment that you have to save your energy to call for help so she said that I waited for a better moment sure and after 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 a few more hours she heard some dogs barking some people you know shouting and somebody heard her I think and then they said like knock once if you're alive and knock twice um if you if someone else is with you or from what apartment are you right, which right. so they but she, at that moment, she says that I, I was too weak to answer. Oh my god! So I think I don't know how uh, it doesn't say. She wasn't it, even able to knock. You couldn't muster yeah, strength. So too. they yeah. start digging up, and mm. they found her and and the baby. Wow! Um, what a miracle! Yeah, it was really. Uh, and uh, she had another son, three years old, mm-hmm. who was um, 
caught in the earthquake with uh, his father. So those two were taken to also they got saved as well to a different hospital, and she was taken to a different hospital. And then when she was told that they're okay, she said that I felt really really happy and grateful. Wow, that's uh, that's an amazing story. Um, in in other news, um, Guardian today talks about um, UK mobile and broadband firms planning to increase um, prices for existing customers. So according to this story, Britain's biggest telecom providers are preparing to launch inflation-busting price increases for broadband and mobile contracts this spring, hitting consumers with a combined bill worth £600 million, more than if these deals had matched the cost of living. BTEE, Vodafone, Virgin Media, O2 and TalkTalk are to increase bills for tens of millions of customers under mid-contract price rises from April and May. The telecom uh, firms use a range of methods to ratchet up the annual cost of bills to take account of inflation partway through an agreed fixed term in a practice not allowed in other utility sectors such as electricity and gas. With the consumer price index measure of inflation at 10.5%, charities are warning that millions of people will face unaffordable price increases this spring. Official figures on Wednesday are expected to show the inflation fell to about 10.2% in January, although it will remain among the highest rates in four decades. Some telecom providers also use the retail price index measure of inflation, which is typically higher. Many firms are set to increase prices above inflation, with some adding up to 3.9 percentage points on top of the official rate. BT and Vodafone added... 3.9 percentage points the rate of December CPI version media is pushing through an average 13.8% rise, although customers will have a month to decide whether they want to leave. This week, O2 will reveal the scale of its price rise, which is based on January's RPI plus 3.9 percentage points. Given RPI in December was 13.4%, a typical customer could be facing a potential 17% plus annual rise. The company said the real increase would be closer to 9 to 10% as it applies to calls and data only, not the significant cost of payments for handsets that are part of bills. However, for next year, Virgin Media O2, the parent company of both brands, intends to pull out, uh, to roll out rather, the RPI plus 3.9 percentage point mechanism across, across its entire TV and broadband business, not just the mobile phone arm. If the UK's biggest broadband and telecom companies were to limit their increases to the level of inflation, scrapping any rise above that, British consumers could save an estimated £600 million plus on their annual bills. That's £600 million. The figure comes as the telecoms regulator Ofcom investigates the widespread practice of mid-contract price rises. Consumers are expected to face more than £2 billion in additional charges this year. So that's um, uh, and another story that uh, uh, I thought was important, given um, uh, you know, given the cost of living crisis and uh, all the price rises uh, that we are facing. Uh, um, not looking forward to that increase. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, there is this question: that How um, how do you talk to your children about this cost of living crisis? Hmm. Because they're not 
as in it it doesn't affect them in a in a sense that they don't have to pay bills and stuff mm. so what what's your opinion or how do you deal with your children or do you at all um tell them about this talk about this cuz some people have um maybe slightly older children maybe 10 11 12 they start asking questions especially if you're in a in a tight situation and you you say we have to keep the heating off i mean they they'll wonder like why yeah i mean i'm cold why can't i have heating exactly So yeah, I think that that's a wonderful question. So so I have um uh an 18-year-old uh who lives with us uh, at home and then I have an 8-year-old uh as well. So we don't uh, talk much about these things with the 8-year-old. Um but uh but I'm sure she 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 is part of those conversations. She listens in. I mean mm-hmm. she, uh we don't address her but you know when these conversations take place which do take place actually with the with the other children. So yes uh we do have these uh, these chats with uh with the 18 year old. You you've got to keep my personal view is you've got to keep your children grounded as well. So you got to let them know uh as much as every parent wants to protect their mm. children uh f- <coughs> you know uh f- from 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 anything that's bad you've got to keep them real you've got to keep them grounded you've got to let them know what's happening on the ground what's happening out there and uh what is it that you can do to to protect them and what is it that you can't do uh and you can't afford to protect them and the extent to which you can go yeah so yes to an extent we uh we do but i'm really um um i i i'm i i really admire your um uh the question and the curiosity that you have given that you don't have any children at the moment <laughs> yeah i don't have children but i do have uh siblings hmm. um I, i am the oldest one but um so i i think i personally am i'm quite mature as well so uh my other siblings in in some cases especially financially they are a little bit reckless or sure. careless um obviously the younger you are the more the less you care but uh, like i always um especially when it comes to f- financial things i always um like take extra care make sure i don't overspend things mm-hmm. so this is why um if, if i talk to my like younger sister or something she'd be like it's okay you know just she's cold she'll turn on the f- heating on full mm-hmm. and my dad's always like it's already so warm you don't need it so i understand the concern of my dad like mm-hmm. i understand because he's paying the bills yeah but um i i feel like other younger children might not they give that much care to. yeah absolutely yeah. yeah so as you know the cost of living is, it just keeps going up and up there's more news mm-hmm. about it there's you don't see like an end to it so mm-hmm. uh, um at some point where well, it's already happening you know a lot of mothers and parents have to um like cut or cut down on meals they have to mm-hmm. save heating they have to save um uh, maybe fuel so it's already happening but the more that the further it gets because um like us personally we're not uh, affected that much yet so maybe in the future it will get worse for all of us even who are more uh, well off so that's why the i mean these questions do come up no well. absolutely and and you're 100% right i mean only what a couple of weeks ago or probably was it last week that we were talking about uh children in lewisham in many parts of the country not yeah. having enough money to afford uh, a toothbrush and a toothpaste yeah. and they're turning up at school without um uh oral health so um uh, yes uh, cost of living crisis and a lot of people have to choose these days uh between heating and eating 
Yeah. So it's uh, it's unfortunately quite a quite a uh, you know sad story if you look at uh, the actual um, uh, what people are actually going through at the moment. And you're right, this is something that uh, children uh, must be talked uh, talked to about, and children must be um, you know sensitized to uh, mm-hmm. to these. Right. Okay. So uh, with that, let's wrap up um, this segment on um, uh, news items uh, appearing in the newspapers this morning. We shall now take a quick break. And when we come back, we will delve right into the first topic, which is about the call for new taxes on super rich after 1% pocket two thirds of all new wealth. You can join us in these discussions. We would really encourage you to, to, to join us in these discussions by calling us at 020-867-7878. You can also tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. of Islam Radio. So for for me in 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 my life what I did was I said to um it came to a point in my life where I said I need spirituality. I need to know about, there must be more to life than just working, getting up in the morning, going to work at nine o'clock, coming home at five o'clock, going to bed, waking up the next day and doing the same thing over and over again. There must be more to life than just eating food and taking pleasure from a meal. There must be more to life than drinking a latte and taking pleasure in a latte. And all of these thoughts take you towards spirituality. And when you know spirituality, that is to come to Allah. So, so that was how it started. But then what really, you know, practically for me, what happened was I said to the, the various friends that I had at the time, you know, I believe in, I want to know about God, whether or not God exists. What would you advise me? So I spoke to a Christian. I spoke to a Buddhist. I spoke to a Muslim. I spoke to a, a Hindu a little bit and also to an Ahmadi Muslim as well. And they all gave me the same advice. They all said, Allah, we believe in God. We pray. And God answers prayers. Sure. So what was very nice is all the different religions essentially gave the same advice. Right. When I did that, then when I prayed, then Allah answered my prayers. Right. And I prayed for the first time genuinely from my heart. And Allah says that whenever the supplicant prays to him, then he answers those prayers. Yeah. And Allah 
by the grace of by the grace of Allah Almighty, then he answered my prayers and I believed in him for the first time. And from there I continued those conversations and I said to the Christian, What do you believe? I said to the Muslim, What do you believe? And to the Hindu the same, and to the Ahmadi Muslim. And essentially to believe in Islam Ahmadiyat means you believe in all of Jesus' teachings, all of Krishna's teachings, all of Buddha's teachings, but you have them clarified by the Holy Quran right. and then you accept the Prophet or the Imam Mahdi who's been sent by Allah in, in subservience to the Holy Prophet mm-hmm. So to, to become an Ahmadi Muslim means that you actually accept everything that all of the others do but you are the most submissive to Allah because you accept a Prophet that has come so recently that to make that decision shows or inshallah it shows to Allah that I'm willing to follow you and not just my culture, not just my society but I'm willing to accept the one that you've sent in my, in my time, in my generation. Sure. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Welcome back to this live edition of The Breakfast Show from South London Studios of Voice of Islam. We are about to delve into the first topic of the day, which is about taxes or a call for new taxes on super rich after 1% pocket two-thirds of all new wealth. So this is a story carried by The Guardian. Uh, Imam Anand, can you take us through the uh, through the story? Yes. So following the discovery that the richest 1% of people have received nearly two-thirds of new money created since the beginning of the COVID pandemic, Oxfam has called for immediate action to combat the post-COVID expansion of global inequality. The charity stated... In a report released in conjunction with the annual meeting of the world's elite at the World Economic Forum in Davos, that the wealthiest individuals have amassed $26 trillion or £21 trillion in additional wealth as the end of 2021. The remaining 99% received the remaining 63% of the total new wealth. So this is a... It's crazy. This is, I mean, twenty-six trillion. You could feel, you could feed um, like a whole continent with this money. Yeah, you can feed a few armies, uh, uh, absolutely, with this sort of money. Uh, to uh, delve more into this topic, um, I spoke earlier with uh, Dr. Bruno uh, Moritza, who is a senior lecturer in finance at the University of Hertfordshire, and I started uh, by asking him about this accumulation of wealth and how does this accumulation of wealth actually take place? Let's, let's listen in. So um, um, wealth has become more concentrated over time. So this is not, although, yes, there has been an acceleration of this trend since the pandemic. This is something that has been going on for at least two, three decades now. Um, and yeah, it's driven by a multitude of factors. Um, some uh, is uh, the increasing income inequality. So from income, then you move to uh, wealth inequality because people with higher income can save more out of their income and so accumulate more wealth. 
um, there has also been a very large increase in uh, the price of assets, like housing, stocks, investments, and so on, which uh, wealthier people have in greater uh, numbers, in greater amounts, and so they have accumulated more wealth than poorer uh, individuals and families. Um, and then, of course, there's the whole discussion about taxes and how taxes have become uh, less progressive, so they have become um, less burdening on wealthier individuals compared to uh, poorer individuals, uh, which has favored, of course, the accumulation of uh, wealth among the wealthiest. I was reading another statistic um, uh, the other day, and according to that statistic, the top eight billionaires of the world, mm-hmm. uh, likes of Bill Gates and others, own the same amount of wealth as the bottom 50%, 4 billion people in the yeah. world. Yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's uh, uh, one of the sort of striking statistics of the extent of wealth concentration. I think if, if you want to look at the sort of the, the very aggregate picture, uh, you know, this recent report from Oxfam shows that essentially the top 1% in the world, yeah, it's just the wealthiest uh, 1% uh, has about half essentially of total global wealth. Uh, and the bottom half of, uh, of, the, of the wealth distribution has uh, less than 1%. Um, so, yeah, and then when you then kind of zero in on who the top 1% uh, are then in many cases is uh, this very you know uh, famous billionaires uh, and less famous ones across the world. Many of them live in the United States, but uh, you know you also have new billionaires uh, across the world emerging every day. You know China, Latin America, and so on, and of course many in Europe as well. So yes, uh, it is it is quite a, a, a stark statistic. Um, and so wealth is you know I think it's important to to mention this again. Uh, Wealth is more unequally distributed than income. Yeah, so the, uh, the inequalities in wealth distribution uh, are much greater than, than income inequality. So my next um, sort of logical question uh, is: the system is capitalism failing us, or failing the majority of the people? Oh, that's a, a difficult question to answer. I suppose you know one what could answer one could answer it depending on sort of you know I guess what capitalism is and what it is for. Uh, I suppose what what I, what I would say here is that yeah there's there's I suppose two levels in which uh, you know maybe the system isn't working uh, well for the majority of people. Uh, and one of course is just the basic sort of fairness question. So. Uh, is it fair that income is so and wealth, sorry, is, is so extremely concentrated? And um, and it's uh, the answer sometimes that is put forward is that yeah, well, but these people you know have made great efforts, you know, have worked very hard to get there. And in some cases, this is also true. But it's important to remember here that we're talking about such vast accumulation of wealth that beyond a certain point, it almost accumulates itself. You know, you don't actually have to put much effort when you have, you know, I don't know, tens of billions of uh, dollars in wealth, and then you just, that just produces so much income that you can just accumulate it. So yeah, it doesn't actually, you know, require much effort. And also there's a question that about uh, how easier it is for wealthier individuals to avoid taxes, uh, which is, uh, uh, of course, uh, a, a great problem today. Um, 
So from a fairness point of view, yes, it would seem so. But I would also add that, you know, these levels of wealth inequality are also not very good for the economy more generally. Uh, so for much of this wealth is not actually invested back in the real economy, which would help the economy more generally. Uh, it doesn't create jobs or businesses. Uh, it's just accumulated in a, you know, sometimes offshore bank account. Um, and, and more generally, you know, inequality just creates a more conflictual type of society, a more polarized society, which is obviously not a good thing in and of itself. So, yeah, I suppose, you know, in a way you could say that, yes, the economy isn't working for the majority. When you look at the statistics, this, this would certainly seem to be the case. What role can the government play in, um, in, in controlling this? Uh, the government can do a lot, uh, has the power to do lots of things. Um, so um, on the one hand, we mentioned before the tax system, of course, that's the most, one of the most powerful tools that it has. Uh, taxes have become less progressive, uh, so uh, comparatively less uh, onerous on uh, wealthier uh, individuals. Um, and I mean, reversing that trend, as the Oxfam report uh, that came out also stresses, would do a lot to reverse some of the uh, wealth concentration trends that we have seen. Um, so that's one one lever that it has. Um, more generally, the government can also, you know, provide universal services that can be accessible to both rich and poor in the same way. Things like healthcare, education, uh, that can. Um, uh, reduce the impact of wealth inequality. It doesn't address, you know, the distribution of wealth uh, directly, but it makes, you know, being less wealthy uh, less of a disadvantage in the economy. So that's another thing that the government can do. Um, and um, the uh, the government can also uh, um, agree with other governments. Uh, and and um, when it comes to the system of tax avoidance that I was mentioning before. Uh, so making it harder for people to avoid taxes, but perfectly legally in many cases, right? Um, and that would, again, help uh, sort of uh, recovering some of the resources that are drained out of the economy and accumulating in essentially very unproductive places. So there, has, there is a lot that the government can do, and to some extent governments have tried to tackle this issue, um, but there's, of course, much more that can be done. There to your mind a moral question here as well. You know, we talk about eight sure. people owning the same amount of wealth that four billion people have in the mm -hmm. world, the fifty percent of the planet's population. Uh, I, this, if you just think about it, it's a staggering number. It is, yeah, no, for sure. I mean, it is obviously at the at the end of the day a, a, a moral question about is it is it fair, right? That uh, uh, like so few people have so much compared to uh, so many that have little to nothing. Um, and it's, of course, it's, it's a difficult question to answer, but, you know, I, I feel maybe most people would probably feel that, yeah, there's probably something wrong, you know, or at least would ask the question, okay, what have they done to be the top 1%? Is that dessert, you know? And, and, and like I said, you know, there is evidence that, you know, these stuff might be perfectly, you know, well-meaning people, but sometimes, you know, the wealth that I have accumulated, it doesn't necessarily stem from very hard work or anything. It just, sometimes it's inherited, for example, right? Uh, and so there is a question there, and I think a case there for um, rebalancing things uh, uh, 
from a basic fairness point of view uh, before you even start calling in the arguments that uh, was mentioned about you know the efficiency of the economy. So yes, uh, I, I agree with you. It is ultimately a, a moral question that that needs to be addressed also on those grounds. Talk about it. So the last time um, this question was was really addressed uh, in a lot of detail was by Karl Marx uh, <laughs> about fifty years ago when the same sort of discussion was happening and and the numbers one must say are even worse now and he presented obviously an alternative which the world has seen hasn't worked so do you think we are we are in in a sort of an economic and moral conundrum here with with limited choices um i mean uh, there are things that we can do i don't think i think yes there have been decisions that have led to this sort of disparity but um that also means that there cannot there can be things that we can do to you know correct this somewhat um, so, um, yes, it is a, a critical point. And, uh, of course, there's also many other uh, big global challenges that we're facing, you know, climate change and so on. Um, but that doesn't mean that, you know, we're kind of powerless to, to do things. Like, uh, like I said, there are actually international efforts to promote, you know, transparency about where assets are kept so that it is easier to track them and recover some of the tax avoidance. Um, uh, which should be uh, sort of recognized and supported, uh, and that that would help. Um, um, so yes, I mean maybe the situation tells us something uh, that might be inherently not great about the kind of economic system that we have designed, uh, but it doesn't mean that we can't change it. So I think uh, in that sense, yes, I would try to sort of uh, look forward with uh, not necessarily optimism, but certainly uh, sort of. Uh, at least optimism in terms of the, the spirits of the things that we can do. So there are things that we can do that we should try to do. You mentioned we are at a critical point. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I absolutely cannot agree more. Would you go so far as to say that, um, that if nothing is done about this, we could be, the world could see more upheaval? Well, uh, I mean, I wouldn't go as far as uh, making forecasts, but certainly, uh, you know, more, like I said, a more unequal society, a society where income and wealth especially is very unevenly distributed, is a more conflictual society, a more polarized society, uh, which, of course, just opens up more space for conflict and, um, you know, disagreements um, and uh, makes us also less able to face things together as a society, right? Um, so in that sense, yes, I would say that if, you know, the issue of wealth inequality isn't tackled, then of course, looking forward, uh, things will be more difficult. Uh, um, how difficult that, of course, depends on the specific country and the specific situation. Um, but yes, uh, inequality can create wider societal issues. Uh, and so that uh, is part of the reason why we should do something about it. Going back to the um, to the argument of uh, more taxes um, and other things that uh, you were putting forward. So, uh, do you think then the solution that, that we need to look towards the governments of this world um, to find a solution for us? Is is that is, is that where the solution lay? Um, 
Well, yes, in a way, uh, governments are the ones that ultimately can implement uh, policies and regulation. Um, well, but of course, they don't do that in a vacuum. Of course, pressure has to be uh, put. You know, uh, reports such as the one that uh, uh, I think you know the the Guardian article you mentioned uh, uh, was was citing are exactly that. Are exactly ways to again show the extent of the issue and propose solutions, which then the government can sort of uh, implement and sort of try to to make uh, to make work. So. Um, uh, yes, I mean, it, 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 governments are the main tools, uh, I mean, the main uh, implementers of tools that we can uh, use to solve uh, the situation, I think. Um, but, of course, there is much that we can do to uh, sort of help them <laughs> do it and, and pressure them to do this. Okay, excellent. Well, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Vanessa, for for joining us, for answering all different Thank questions. You. This is obviously not an easy subject, so I, I truly appreciate you coming on. And So that was uh, 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 an interview with Dr. Bruno Moritza, who is a senior lecturer in finance at the University of Hertfordshire. Um, let me go straight to our second guest for this particular segment, uh, Mr. Oran Ahmed, who is a political commentator, communications firm owner, and a former parliamentary staffer. Assalamu alaikum, peace be with you. Warm welcome to The Breakfast Show. Waalaikum Islam, thank you for having me. Uh, Mr. Ahmed, uh, can you uh, please introduce uh, yourself uh, for our listeners? Yes, so um, I am a accounting and finance graduate specializing in political finance. Um, as you said, I'm a pol- former political aide um, and a advisor to former ministers and others in government. Which ministers uh, and which government uh, were you part of? It was under the current, well, under the Conservative government. So it was between 2017 and 2020 um, under um, various ministers, including uh, the private parliamentary secretary of the prime minister. Awesome. So, uh, Mr. Ahmed, let me start by asking, uh, uh, putting the same question uh, to you that I put to, um, to Dr. Bruno earlier. So I was reading um, um, a statistic uh, which said that uh, the top eight billionaires of the world, the likes of uh, Bill Gates and others, have the same amount of wealth as the bottom 50%. That's four billion people of the world. Four billion versus eight people. Your thoughts on that? So it's quite interesting when we look at this. Um, Obviously, we've seen that some of these eight, as you mentioned, have accumulated a lot of their wealth in the last 20, 25 years. And they've managed to actually increase the buzz. We've seen the bottom 50% actually, parts of segments of the bottom 50% have become worse and worse off in that time. So um, it's not, um, it, it seems to be at an unfair advantage that some of them have um, accumulated their wealth and have um, become even richer. And a lot of that is to do with certain um, areas where when you say 50%, depending on the, the the countries they live in, their economic policies, and so some of them have been more unfairly disadvantaged as well, and therefore they are becoming poorer and poorer at this point of time. So, um, where do you stand on this debate uh, about taxing the rich? 
Well, I certainly believe that internationally, countries should actually make sure that we are taxing every single person fairly. Now, what, but that's, I'm not saying that we should specifically target the rich. If they are already paying the legislated tax amounts that have been set, which are at the fair point, if we look at the UK, we're looking at 45% um, above a certain amount and the super rich all fall under that category. So um, 45%, so nearly half of your income is already going in taxation. The UK is obviously at the forefront of that, whilst other countries are still far, far from actually hitting the ideal point. Um, if we look at a lot of the countries in Africa, in Latin America, um, in Asia as well, they're simply not having the same effect. They're simply not putting the same policies in place. And therefore, um, the super rich are getting richer even quicker. So therefore, what I believe is that as a as governments unite together and stuff, they need to look at this problem and they need to make sure that they're all taxing um, everyone fairly and that includes the super rich so it's not that everyone um, who has ordinary jobs or those who are below the line of poverty they're paying more taxes than those of the super rich because loopholes and unfair taxation um, exist but the super rich are not uh, getting richer in Africa the super rich are getting richer in America and here in Europe that's, that's correct if you look at it in a global perspective. But if you do look at those in um, the African continent as well, there are some, um, we've seen a lot of specific examples in South Africa, for example, where the super rich are getting even richer. But as you said, in likes of America and stuff as well, there aren't simply robust tax policies in place where they, where they can... Um, tax them at a fair amount. Um, we've we've seen that some of in some of the cases the super rich are paying far less tax than an average retail worker in likes of America. And that's because they have these kind of tax policies, loopholes, where the super rich can just simply avoid paying those taxes. Um, and that includes in ways <coughs> where not taking the salaries in um, actual monetary terms. So um, or they're taking them in shares and likes of dividends and other things. So therefore, the taxation system simply does not exist to support those kinds of things. Um, but whereas in other countries, they already have more robust policies in place and therefore um, they're, they're doing a better job. So I think what, what we are seeing in some of these countries, uh, America very specifically, the tax policies are heavily set by lobbyists. Lobbyists are paid by rich um, people and by rich companies. And therefore, the tax policies exist to favour them. Whilst in other countries, in Europe especially, we are seeing that, yes, some policies exist to make the rich richer, but most of the policies exist to actually make society better and to make sure that fair taxation exists. So I think there's a stark difference when we look between the US and other European countries. So... Do you then believe that the system in the UK, let's talk about UK specifically, is fair? The taxation I the system? UK, I think it's a lot fairer than in other countries, absolutely. I think in the UK where um, we have strong inheritance tax in place, we have strong um, uh, taxation for properties and everything in place, it, it kind of makes it very difficult uh, for rich people not to pay a fair amount of taxation. Now, there's a difference where, um, when when I say the fair amount of taxation, it, by fair amount, I'm saying 
if the government, for example, has said that nearly 50% of all of your income above a certain threshold should be paid in taxation, that's a fair amount uh, that has been considered by lawmakers and by society as a general um, in, in that case. So that they should be paying that. And um, the UK has actually been in the forefront of making sure that tax is being paid and that we uh, we avoid companies being in safe havens if they're located in the UK and so on. So we've been doing a bigger push in the UK to make sure that that can be taken out of question, that people are avoiding paying the taxation. So I think in the UK, we actually have a strong, robust system in place. Um, whereas if you look in other developed countries, they're not as strong as the UK. Um you're saying that, uh, so you're debating that 45-50% um, uh, upper tax limit is fair. Um, what about the Scandinavian system where, you know, even 70 to 80% uh, of your wealth is, or your income is taxed if you are in, in the super rich category? So it is, there's definitely an argument, but I mean, like, we, we are currently comparing and I use this phrase like but apples to bananas in the way that um, the Scandinavian tax system, even for um, the those who are less well off, is still stronger, uh, like it's still a lot more than what we have in the UK. And the reason for that is the Scandinavian um, governments in general are providing a higher level of service people um, than what we expect in the UK or like in Germany and other countries. That, that, so, that's highly debatable, Mr. Abbott. I mean, a, a lot of people who are having to choose between heating and eating at the moment will probably not agree with that. No, I completely agree, but that is not the case that I'm making. What One thing is in Scandinavian countries, they're providing education up to a certain level. They're providing a lot of job, uh, job support up to a certain level. Other things, their tax money can be identified directly what they're getting in return. They're not getting as high tax cuts and st- uh, they're not getting um, free energy in a lot of cases either. But I completely agree. Those who are uh, those who are currently in need and stuff, they will completely agree that like, you know, others should be taxed higher. But then it goes back to the same argument. Shouldn't it just be a fairer tax uh, tax policy for all rather than just targeting those who have who may have accumulated or have done better off in the so last century? Let me, let me give you another statistic and then perhaps we can have a more informed uh, discussion. So according to the World Economic Forum, the wealthiest individuals have amassed $26 trillion in additional wealth at the end of 2021, that's just in during COVID time, 26 trillion during COVID when, again, um, the whole world was in lockdown and a lot of people uh, were stressed for, for money. The remaining 99% of the people got about 60% of the, of the new wealth. So 1% getting 26 trillion. How fair do you think is that? No, I definitely think that there, there is an unfair advantage that they have had and therefore they have been able to accumulate a lot more wealth than others. And by this, I mean, by a lot more, I mean, even the percentage rise in both of it has been, you know, exponential for the super rich. But my, my argument here is, my argument is not that people who are getting rich or people becoming richer than they already are. My argument is that the fairer taxation system should be implemented. So that means that those, if they have earned $27 tr- uh, trillion, for, um, as you have mentioned, um, 
then as long as they're paying the fair taxation rates on that, that that for me is okay. The fact is, I'm not going to stop someone from becoming richer if that if that is the case. But as long sure. as they are paying the right amount, if they are contributing to society at the rate that they have been legislated to do so, then I'm completely fine with that because they're not saying that we're better off and therefore we don't want to pay tax. If they're still paying 45% tax as in the UK then that's fine with me because they are contributing at the same rate as they sh- uh, as everyone else in their category. So so you think you're saying essentially that 45% of your mind is a fair taxation rate even for an ultra wealthy individual who has amassed part of this 26 trillion. Absolutely. I, I do think that is the case. Because in, in the 26, uh, 26, 27 trillion, as, uh, as you mentioned, um, which um, the World Economic Forum has said, you are looking at only a fair few, like uh, most of the wealth has been accumulated by a fair few, as you mentioned. That, that's the, the question, exactly. Yeah. But the thing is, most of the others, if we look at most of this world, like um, the, the top half of this world is by a fair few. Most of the others is by general entrepreneurs, multimillionaires, multi-billionaires, and they are contributing it. Now, if we can, fair enough, if we can ensure, as I was saying before as well, if we can make sure that everyone is paying the fair amount. So if we know in the UK there are billionaires or uh, like upper and millionaires as well who are not currently paying the 45%, my thing is we should be putting on the fight to make sure they are paying the fair amount of taxation rather than saying that those who may already be paying should be paying even more. The whole thing is, if we make sure that there's a good legislation system in place, that everyone Mm. is paying their fair amount, then I think we don't have this problem. Mr. Ahmed, sorry to interrupt. Uh, We are coming up to the 8 o'clock news. If I can just ask you to stay online, we would. this is a very interesting discussion, and we would certainly like to hear uh, what you have to say more on that. So please do stay on the line, and we'll come back to you right after the uh, news. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Welcome back to this live edition of The Breakfast Show, live from the Southland Studios of Voice of Islam. Before we went on to the news break, we were talking about uh, the disparity in in wealth globally. And we were having a very interesting discussion with Mr. Oran Ahmed, who is a political commentator, communications firm owner, and a former parliamentary staffer. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to The, uh, to the Breakfast Show. Wa alaikum salam. Thank you. So thank you for staying on the line, uh, Mr. Ahmed. Yeah, so um, before we went on to the news break, we were talking about, um, uh, we were having a discussion as to what what is a fair tax rate? Uh, I think essentially we both agree that rich need to be taxed, and I think we also can agree that uh, there's nothing wrong with with being rich. Um, But what is the appropriate taxation rate? And we would, you know, I gave you an example of the Scandinavian system where, you know, the taxation rate is sometimes even higher, higher than 70, 80% or close to that. Um, over here, we have a 45% maximum taxation 
rate. And the statistic that I put to you was that if somebody had uh, amassed this 26 trillion uh, or part of this 26 trillion worth of wealth just during COVID, um, which is about 40% of the wealth which was generated during um, during the COVID times, um, how fair is that and how can we make it more fairer? So, um, and, and you were arguing, uh, Mr. Ahmed, that um, even if somebody is uh, making that sort of um, wealth or accumulating that sort of wealth, 45% rate in the UK is the fair rate. Did I understand that correctly? Absolutely. I mean, like, if we are looking at that um, number, if we're already looking at in the UK, the top 10% of um, income taxpayers are paying 60% of income tax in the UK at the moment. So we're already seeing that the, like, the rich, they are already contributing. So I believe in the UK, when you ask the question, what is the fair taxable amount. I think the UK has a very good one. So it's 45%, nearly half of all the income they're accumulating, uh, they, they are earning above, um, I believe, 125,000 is, um, uh, is taxed and nearly half of what they're earning. So I think that's a very, very fair amount. And as we can see already from the statistics that um, HMRC and the Office of National Statistics in the UK has published, 10% of income taxpayers with the largest income um, contribute over 60% of income tax receipts. And their households as well, same found that the um, top 10% of households contribute nearly 50% of all taxes. So that includes everything from VAT to national insurance to, um, uh, to income tax. So we are seeing that the richest in the UK, because we have a strong system, they are already paying far more than a lot of others put together. Thank you, Mr. Ahmed. Um, is this a myth or is this the truth that rich people um, avoid taxes and uh, the richer you are, the easier it is to avoid taxes? Do you think this um, has any basis? Is this really true? And if so, uh, if you could explain a little bit how that tax evasion process works, how they can get away with not paying or paying a lot less tax. So I think the myth stems from truth, obviously. I, I think there's no doubting in anyone who says, oh, uh, some of the super rich or some rich people avoid taxes. Um, that, that's a very, uh, that's obviously based on truth. And the way they do it is, uh, as I briefly mentioned before, some actually register themselves in countries where they're actually not based. Some countries allow people to come and become um, and get citizenships for cash. It's, yeah. it's well known. There's some in Europe, there's some in other places as well. And they sometimes have more tax favorable um, positions for those who are rich or super rich, which means that they pay very little amounts on their income and therefore they can get away with it. We've seen um, a recent rise in um, Russia used to be very famous, but since the Russian uh, uh, government and the uh, Russian people have had a lot of sanctions put on them. Mm. A lot of the super rich from Russia have moved to likes of the United Arab Emirates, where again they get very favorable amounts uh, of uh, tax that they have to pay. So, therefore, this is one way of tax evasion where they move to another and uh, another mm. country, another territory where they have to pay less tax. So, therefore, even though they may actually be paying tax 
somewhere, they're not paying the fair amount of tax of the country they actually reside in or where their businesses are actually resided in. Second one is where they don't take the tax, uh, they don't take the salaries and the money in actual monetary terms, like in real liquid cash. They take in other things like shares, dividends, um, and equity in other businesses or via, um, or they get paid into companies themselves. So they get paid into a company of their own rather than as a person. And again, they're avoiding paying taxes there. So um, in, in that case as well. So I think that there's obviously, as you mentioned, tax evasion is it. There are other, mm-hmm. other means of doing it as well. But a lot of them are using the very general ones, as I mentioned, by, li- by saying they live in a separate country than they actually do. And I think that's where we need to make sure governments are doing all the best in saying that you're earning most of your money from this country. We know you reside in this country and therefore you should be paying the fair tax amount of this country rather than saying that you live in country A but um, you've registered in country B and therefore pay the tax amount of country. I think that's where we are at the issue. Does that uh, completely exempt them from, from, let's say, if someone from the UK uh, registers them in, in the UAE, that completely um, exempts them uh, exempts them from the tax in the UK. Well, not not completely, but what it does is they, um, as I was saying, some of them will then say. So for myself, if I say that I live in the UK, I'll take a normal amount of salary based in the UK, but most of the money that I'm earning is going to another company that only I own in the UAE. And that's where I'm getting paid from for most of my um, lavish lifestyle. That's where the issue comes in. So they're not completely exempt from the UK. The UK Mm -hmm. is doing a a good job in making sure that this is prevented. But um, that's where we see the issue where people are getting paid via companies in other other countries and stuff. That's where you will see that they are um, avoiding taxes in the UK. Right. Mr. Ahmed, thank you very, very much for joining us this morning. Um, Very informed discussion. Really appreciate your input today. Thank you so much. Thank you. So that was Mr. Oran Ahmed, who is a political commentator, communication firm's owner, and a former parliamentary staffer. If I can turn to you, uh, Imam Anand, Anand, if I can turn to you about... um, about the Islamic perspective of uh, of wealth accumulation, uh, can you uh, maybe spend a few minutes talking about the the system of zakat uh, in Islam and how that uh, prevents from wealth being accumulated? Um, yeah, so uh, Islam is uh, very much against accumulating wealth. Uh, that does not mean Islam is uh, um, discriminative towards rich people. But uh, the reason is that rich people usually are those who hoard more money, and that's how that's one way to get rich. Um, so the the system of zakat, zakat essentially means to purify. So uh, Allah the Almighty states in the Holy Quran that the the system of zakat has been put in place for you to purify your wealth. Uh, and how do you purify it? It's uh, using it in a good cause. If you are rich and you give charity, that's zakat, basically. Um, however, in Islam, the the zakat percentage um, has been put to 2.5% of your annual wealth. And it is only that wealth which is, which, uh, which is just laying around. So if you have 
a hundred thousand pounds in your bank and for a whole year for 365 days you not using that money or that wealth which you are keeping it is just laying around for for the whole year so it's no good to anyone you are not using it you are not um, putting him in the system, you know, you know, moving around. So it's just laying on the side. So two point five percent on on such um, money or wealth, which is not being used in your life in your in the society, that money is uh, being taxed at only two point five percent. So Islam uh, um, promotes this uh, system because if if everyone who starts paying these this little two percent, two point five percent on the wealth which they don't even use then we will see that even the super rich who, uh, who have a lot of money if they pay a little amount and the poor who also have some money they pay their amount as well they will see that wealth is will start moving around in the society and this is important because if, if money doesn't move around your society doesn't move around okay if the poor the poor people stay poor and the rich stays rich there will be no uh, interaction between them there will be no mixing there won't there won't be diversity so this system is is very um uh very good very simple the reason is that it's a very small amount and if you have a hundred pounds you give away two pound fifty it's a very tiny amount for you however that tiny amount which if it's paid by everyone it will uh, become something uh, big and useful for the state uh, if everyone pays it this is why the, if the super rich I think if they're paying 45% that is quite a high tax hmm. uh, I did want to ask another question to Mr. Ahmed but he's gone that if if you decrease the tax paid on uh, if you decrease the tax uh, of the super rich hmm. to a lower amount will that maybe help to um, you know make them pay pay the tax you yeah. know if, if you put the tax to let's say 10 percent even the rich people say oh 10 percent okay fine i'll pay that they'll try not to evade the tax and will start paying and if everyone who's rich starts paying 10 percent i think we will get more money back than if uh, we get 45 percent out of a couple of people right and 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 so the islamic system that you're saying um, of zakat is is basically about making sure that wealth doesn't accumulate so, so if you have uh, if you are one of these billionaires and under an mm. Islamic system, if you are not using those billions, if those billions are lying in a bank account or uh, you're in assets that are not being used, then that, uh, then those will have to be brought back in into circulation and yeah. a percentage will have to be paid back um, uh, uh, to, uh, with the, to the government treasury. Mm. And that's how Islam ensures that uh, wealth is... Uh, circulated within the society. Right. Thank you very much uh, for that, Imam Anan. Uh, that brings our first segment to a close. We shall now take a quick break. And when we come back, we will begin discussion on the second topic, which is about the Islamic way of protesting. So what is the correct way of protesting in Islam? Please do join us in this discussion by calling us at 0208687-7878. You can also tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. We shall be back right after this quick break. Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar. 
أكبر أشهد أن لا أشهد أن محمدا You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Hazrat Yusuf, on whom be peace, mentions God's favors by virtue of his attribute of Al Latif, the benignant. by recalling how God was his friend while his brothers conspired against him according to the lexicon latif is a kind of gracious being one who is benevolent to his creation as well as one who is aware of all subtle and incomprehensible matters al latif is one who illuminates hearts who makes arrangements for physical and spiritual nourishment and who offers his friendship to his servants during times of tribulation the promised messiah on whom be peace said that sight intellect and consciousness cannot reach god it is impossible to try and see him he is al-latif he is unseen and illuminates the person he reaches to such an extent that the person speaks for him a divine honor mostly granted upon the prophets of god god is the knower of all subtleties and is all aware he is of those who seek him and raises prophets to be their guide to him his light is manifested through his prophets as they spread the light of unity of god all around them among all the prophets of god The holy prophet peace and blessings of Allah be upon him disseminated this light the most for it was he who had the most perfect perception of God and it was he who was completely imbued in the colors of God in the current age because of his perfect and complete devotion and subservience to the holy prophet peace and blessings of Allah be upon him God has granted this distinct honor the promised messiah on whom be peace it is the attribute of al-latif that makes god the friend of his servants in all trials and tribulations just as the holy prophet peace and blessings of allah be upon him continuously prayed for the reformation of his ummah as well as his opponents as only al-latif can be the guidance and reformation al-latif is the supporter of the victim the voice of the oppressed al-latif is that companion whose loyalty never fails to astound 
It is He who fills hearts with His magnificent light. Then, should we not be grateful for the mercy of Al-Latif? Listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Assalamu you. Welcome back to this live edition of the Breakfast Show from South London Studios of Voice of Islam. We are about to move to the second topic of the day, which is about protesting and the right way of protesting in Islam. So on Sunday, a group of last Sunday, a group of uh, Muslims protested in The Hague against recent Quranic desecration as well as Islamophobia. As part of the end anti-Muslim hatred protest led by the Federation of Islamic Organizations and the um, uh, a regional Islamic Organization Association, hundreds of Muslims marched towards the Kokam Square. As they gathered in the square, they screamed anti-Islamophobic chants and denounced the burning of the Muslim holy book. They prayed and recited passengers, passages from the Quran as well. The protest stemmed from one in a line of anti-Islamic acts, this one ripping off the Quran by the far-right Dutch leader Edwin Wagensveld ripping off the Holy Quran and videoing it and arresting, when arresting, he alleged that he had permission from the city of, of The Hague. The video clip then shows the Quran and its stone art pages burning in a fire in an object resembling a frying pan placed on the floor. Uh, so the question we are asking is, um, the, the desecration of uh, the Holy Quran, obviously, um, is something which... Uh, uh, which is um, uh, which is immensely hurtful to to any Muslim and causes a huge amount of pain uh, to any Muslim more than um, you know any um, uh, anybody else can actually imagine. But what is the correct way of uh, uh, of protesting in Islam, Imam Anan, Your thoughts? Well, yeah. First of all, this um, act which was done. Um, I think not not just as Muslims as any human being. Um, I don't think anyone thinks this is right, this is correct, or this is acceptable. So um, first of all, this is very uh, disappointing, very sad. Um, but on the other hand, we see that our other um, Muslim brothers they're going out on the streets and protesting. 
I understand everyone has a, a, a emotional connection. Every Muslim has an emotional connection to the Holy Quran, and uh, it's just as like like a family. Um, somebody, let's say somebody did that to your parents or something. They treated them badly. So, uh, but going out on the streets and protesting and disturbing other people, you know, harming other things, you're essentially doing the same thing which the opposition op- opposition did. So this is why if we if we truly love the Holy Quran and have that love for the Holy Quran, we need to see what the Holy Quran and uh, the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, has told us about this, how he has acted upon this. And the biggest example is his own life, is the persecution he faced in in uh, his lifetime when he lived in Mecca. Now this this uh, act of the uh, ripping the Quran and burning it happened has done it has been done a few times hmm. uh twice uh, you know recently um but the holy prophet peace be upon him he was persecuted for 13 years hmm. 13 years he he was preaching the message of islam he was being hated he was thrown stones at okay hmm. he would bleed uh, he would bleed so much that his his shoes would uh, they would be drenched in blood yeah. so so much persecution but what was his response that's what we need to look at. What was his response? If we if we are truly Muslims, we mm. we can't act other in any other way than the founder of Islam, who yes. created, yeah. who started this. And his his response was that he remained patient. He and he asked uh, God Almighty for help. And after thirteen years of uh, severe persecution, what he did was he left. He walked away. He did not confront them. He didn't fight them he walked away because if you if you fight back it's it's not going to help the the situation is only going to escalate if somebody is cursing at you and you start cursing back this is not going to end it it's it's your ego which comes in so the holy prophet sallallahu he walked away and the reason for that was the, that that was the command of god hmm. he said i will deal with it don't worry yeah absolutely let's go to our first guest um uh, for this segment miss um, zakina Lukili, who has a bachelor and master's degree in religious studies from the University of Amsterdam, where her main interests were Islam and Muslims in the West. Her master's thesis focused on hashtag activism by American, British and Dutch Muslims. And she's currently working on a PhD dissertation on religion, social media and politics in Netherlands. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be with you. A warm welcome to the breakfast show. Can you hear us? Yes, I can. I okay. hope you can hear me too. Excellent. Yes, we can. Loud and clear. Thank you. Great. So um, let's uh, let's start maybe um, by... So this whole sort of debate um, stems from the discussion around uh, freedom of speech. Yes. Whether, uh, you know, whether you are, whether you should be able to protest because it's all about freedom of speech. And and also on the other side, uh, you know, they, they burn the Quran. Because they say that it's uh, it's part of their freedom of uh, of speech um, um, rights as well. Um, your thoughts on that? Yeah, my thoughts um, on it in the Dutch context is that it's really um, connected to the history of uh, religion in the Netherlands. Um, the Netherlands is, of course, a very um, yeah very strongly secularized country. Yeah. So discussions about the freedom of speech here is connected to um, also ideas about religion in the public domain um, and how it, it really confronts a lot of Dutch people with something that they associate with 
uh, an oppressive church uh, in the history of, of Dutch uh, of the Dutch uh, country, um, where the church was really against anything that might be different or that might deviate from uh, Christian teachings. And I think that a lot of these ideas are projected on Islam and Muslims today, uh, and that's why this backlash is so uh, strong. I think. Yeah. So, would you would you say that the pendulum has um, has actually swung really to the other end? And that backlash, when we talk about that backlash, uh, Muslims are really getting the wrong end of the stick here in the name of uh, of offensive uh, remarks and offensive acts. So is is being offensive uh, acceptable in the name of freedom of religion and freedom of expression? Yeah, that's a good question. And I think that you get a different answer uh, depending on who you ask. Um, but this is a really uh, intense discussion in the in the Netherlands right now, uh, not only between non-Muslims and Muslims, but also uh, within Muslim communities, really. Uh, what can we accept and what can we not accept? Um, so I think that um, uh, it really depends on, I think that a lot of people try to talk about the legal dimension of freedom of speech and of being offensive. Um, so a lot of non-Muslims would say, as long as I'm not doing something illegal, uh, I can be as offensive, it's not illegal, um, and we should be allowed to do so. And a lot of Muslims' arguments is, well, uh, that should not be the reason why you should not be offensive. The reason should be that we are talking about a community that is already marginalized in a lot of ways, um, that is already discriminated against uh, on a large scale. Um, so it should be about a social contract, about uh, being respectful towards people and not really about whether you are uh, doing something illegal or not. Um, thank you. Uh, do you think that the fear of Muslims and the distorted images of Islam are getting better and uh, the, the true teachings of Islam are being conveyed to the Muslim by the Muslims uh, to the community in, in your country? Yeah, it's, um, I would say yes and no. Uh, in a lot of ways, um, you know, a lot of Muslims joke that uh, the more negative news there is about Islam, the more people convert to Islam uh, mm. uh, somehow. So it, it, uh, it, it really makes people more interested in, in learning more about Islam, more in a way than uh, when there is not a lot of news about it. Um, and there's a lot more organization among uh, Muslims in the Netherlands. Um, so, for example, my the generation of my parents, um, they did not really have the tools to fight against um, stereotypical images of Islam. Mm -hmm. uh, so in a lot of ways, they had to accept it. Uh, but what I see now is that there's a lot of organization and there's a lot of discussions and initiatives to really fight and combat these kind of negative images of Islam. Uh, so, for example, we have a political party that... Um, that addresses a lot of these issues that uh, confronts Muslim communities, uh, but also an organization that is called Melt Islamophobia, uh, which, can, which can be translated to uh, Report Islamophobia. Um, so in a lot of ways, uh, Islamophobia has grown. It has become normalized, uh, especially post 9-11. Uh, but there's also more resistance and um, uh, yeah, better representation of the community. Yeah. And... Uh you know, with freedom, there's always grey areas. Um, do you think that the burning of the Quran, um, which took place in the Netherlands, is is that an acceptable act of freedom of religion or freedom of speech? And where would you personally think we need to draw the limit? Where Where is that line that my freedom stops here and your boundaries start here? 
Yeah, um, yeah, that's a really good question, uh, and this is a discussion that is um, that is taking place uh, currently uh, among a lot of opinion makers in the in the Netherlands. Um, I would say personally that uh, the discussion should not be about um, you know whether you have the right to be offensive towards people, because of course it is not illegal uh, to be offensive, and it, that should not be the case. Mm. Uh, but the discussion should really be about who has power and who has not. Um, and who you know who who are we talking about? We are talking about marginalized communities uh, that should not be uh, provoking is not the way to to make a point really mm. to provoke a community. Uh, I think a lot of Muslims also try to make this point, right? They say that if uh, if this was about the Holocaust or about Jewish communities, uh, this would be a completely diff- different discussion, and people would uh, understand that this is not a way to uh, to initiate a discussion or mm-hmm. to exercise your uh, your freedom of speech. Yeah. Um, so we should really talk about the social contract that we should have, really, I think, in, instead of uh, talking about whether it's legal or illegal or should be made illegal. Um, yeah, so that's... And I think also burning books uh, is, is a different kind of uh, discussion because um, you have to place that in a line of... Uh, burning books in in the historical dimension, uh, in which burning books is more than just burning a physical object. It is also about uh, burning really symbolically a civilization behind it, mm-hmm. burning the people behind it, the communities behind it, uh, and this is also the signal that Muslims in the Netherlands get when you burn a Quran. It is not just about the physical object. It is also about uh, the people who represent it and the people who who make use of this object in their daily lives. Uh, so it's a signal to all of these Muslims that are citizens uh, and are now feeling like they are not completely accepted as citizens. Excellent. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Kina Lukili, for joining us today and sharing your thoughts on this very important subject. Really appreciate your input. Have a lovely day. Thank you. You're welcome. Assalamu alaikum So that was uh, Ms. Sakina Lukili, who um, has a bachelor's and master's degree and is in religious studies and currently uh, doing her PhD dissertation on religion, social media and politics in the Netherlands. Let me go straight to our last guest uh, for the show, um, uh, Imam Ibrahim Noonan, who is the imam and imam of the MD Muslim community in Ireland. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be with you. A very, very warm welcome here from London. Waalaikum salam. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's always um, an honor to have you, Imam Noonan. Let me start by asking, um, are protests allowed in Islam? If we mean are protests allowed just damaging buildings or burning flags or destroying property, no. Such, uh, such protests are not allowed in Islam. But if we are saying, can we protest as one individual, as a community, by our good behavior, by our um, right to practice our faith? Yes. Such protests should be done in the sense like this. Not like we're seeing um, over the years where you see Muslims marching to streets, uh, burning flags, insulting perhaps um, political leaders or religious leaders of other faiths or, like I said, damaging properties, screaming and shouting. All that does is give a wrongful image of uh, uh, the peaceful religion of Islam. Right. And if we were to 
separate the other things uh, that you said in terms of violent violent protests if you're not if it is a peaceful protest um, a, a question is often asked if it's uh, you know just marching through the three streets and you're not burning anything you're not destroying any property is, is that allowed i would not say it's allowed yes because it's not something that we have seen the the holy prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam peace be him uh, doing we've never seen him march with groups of muslims followers his companions particularly in the early part of islam where they were severely persecuted and uh, killed by their faith and taunted by their belief in the oneness of god almighty and the divine revelation we didn't see that all we saw was patience and uh, extreme uh, um, you know more efforts in prayer and patience that's what we have seen so i think that is uh, is how we should be uh, presenting islam even today right what is the islamic teaching around freedom of speech imam lunan well freedom of speech is allowed uh, as your last uh, contributor this young uh, this lady uh, mentioned freedom of speech should be allowed otherwise if we restrict freedom of speech mm. then of course we're restricting our own right to preach the message of islam um to anyone in any society the freedom of speech is certainly allowed um it's not something that we can hinder or stop because if we do that then we would be doing the very uh, a great injustice to ourselves for example uh where our our community the amadi muslim community in particular where we go out on the high streets uh, of most western uh, countries where we have our uh, islamic information centers where we reach out to the public to show them the true teachings of islam to uh, present to them um, the islamic position and things that's a form of freedom of speech um where we are and some people may do this um, i certainly do it uh where i often go to hyde park when i visit london and done it for 20 years where i would stand there and convey the message of islam that's freedom of speech so freedom of speech is allowed so we have to allow others to have their freedom of speech i think where we draw the line is when freedom of speech transforms or transition does a transition from peaceful to hate speech that is where we have to question how to define hate speech and hate speech uh can and does and it's been proven uh you know it incites others uh, to go beyond hate and that hate means either harming mosques by destroying them burning them maybe physically attacking muslims um insulting muslim women by putting their hijab veil off their face etc um burning the quran as an example that's a form of hate speech um uh yeah so i think uh we have the right for freedom of speech but then we cannot transit into transit transit into another level of uh, physical hate mm-hmm. and what what would be your opinion on how we should tackle these issues um the quran being burned or hate speech what what response should the muslims have upon this rather than marching out well for me uh the guiding principle has always been and for me when i say me i mean 
I really mean the, the, the practice of the Holy Prophet, peace upon him, uh, who was the embodiment of the Holy Quran. He was a very living, physical uh, explanation and example of the Holy Quran. So really, uh, when we look at the Holy Quran, for example, um, one of my favorite verses of the Holy Quran is uh, in Surah Imran, which is chapter 105, where it says, And let there be among you a body of men, who should invite to goodness and enjoy equity and forbid evil, and it is they who shall prosper. So the focus that we should be focusing on as Muslims, where it says, and that means that and, and, and it is these people who act upon goodness and righteousness and justice and forbid evil, they shall prosper. So, for example, evil comes in many shapes and forms. Evil is not just the highest level of evil, of course, is killing another human being. But there are other forms of evil, taunting, bullying, uh, you know, these are forms of evil. Inciting hate is a form of evil. So, so people like um, this uh, Ramius, uh, Ramius Pododon, if that's, if that's his name, from Denmark, hmm. um, who, who have nothing better to do than just burn the Quran just to incite hatred, uh, to ignite a division between the European, white European uh, concepts or perspectives of, of their hate against Islam. That's all he's doing. So what he's doing is inciting, igniting hate on both sides. He wants to ignite um, extremism, uh, you know, far-right extremism, to, up, to rise up against Muslims in, in Europe. Um, so what's the best way we can respond? And, and, and ensure that we will prosper in that is by responding in peace, by mm -hmm. simply becoming the very example of the Holy Prophet, peace upon him, by our good behavior. And that is how we should respond. If, if, um, if a Muslim, man or woman, wants to really, in my opinion, wants to really... Um, I'm trying to write the, the right expression. I don't want to use the word hit back. Um, if they really want to demonstrate, it is by their own good behavior, by, by the West, Western governments, Western European people all over Europe, including you know, Britain and Ireland. The best way is to be, act upon righteousness and goodness. And that is actually, in my personal opinion, will, will, will move uh, the European people more towards uh, liking Islam, loving Islam, and, and becoming curious about Islam. Um, there's also a, a aspect of self-respect and uh, kind of jealousy for for Islam, um, for its honor. Um, how would you um, explain to someone who says that I, I'm doing this as, as out of uh, uh, out of the respect of Islam, that Islam does not deserve this humiliation, so we should stand up and do something about it? Well, of course, it's normal and it's natural for someone to be hurt, um, both uh, emotionally, um, you know, uh, with emotionally, definitely, when they would see, um, you know, the divine revelation of Almighty Allah being burnt. Um, and it is offensive. It's offensive to me even. Um, you know, I, I have been dealing with uh, these types of people for years, uh, in England, in Ireland, and elsewhere, 
um, where they insult the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, where they insult Almighty Allah, where they insult the Holy Quran, they accuse the Quran of teachings which are not there. Um, so they start abusing. I mean, mm-hmm. on, t- on inf- Islamic information centers, the abuse we get and insult towards the Holy Prophet. Yes, your first reaction is, um, you know, um, you know, naturally, your reaction is going to be, this guy deserves uh, some kind of a slap. But mm-hmm. we can't do that. I mean, if you slap someone for doing that, then what have you proven? All you have proven is that uh, what they want them, what, the, what they want to prove to the West that Islam, Islam, Muslims are violent. Look, look at their response: beating, slapping, killing, destroying. The very opposite of what Islam teaches. So the best thing is patience. It is just literally patience. It's actually, I mean, I've been spat on, I've been, I've been slapped across the head, I've been punched into the rib cages uh, when I, in Hyde Park. I, you know, I've had things thrown on me. Um, and yes, being an Irishman, being really an Irishman, an Irish attitude, my first response is, this guy deserves a good slapping. But thankfully, I'm a Muslim now, alhamdulillah. And I know that I just have to lower my head, grip my tit, and just start praying. Um, you know, I don't know if you remember this, but uh, the time in, in uh, Betel Fatou, modern mosque was being built, uh, suggested to become a, a, a mosque in, in modern I, got, I was surrounded by a BMP who, who basically said they were going to beat me and they were going to, you know, physically harm me. Mm-hmm. And yes, my first reaction was, as an Irishman, not as a Muslim, as an Irishman, these guys deserve a beating. But then I realized I am a Muslim, alhamdulillah. So I just put my head down and started doing the retreat. That is the best response. But to what extent, extent are you going to be patient? Um, we, we see in the case of the Holy Prophet peace be upon him that after so many years of persecution, after 13 years, he had to leave, and then they, this, the the enemy still persisted and chased him. So, to what extent, um, in this case, um, in in terms of freedom of speech and uh, the Quran being burned, how long should we be uh, patient, and uh, what will be the next step? Well, look. Um of course, Almighty Allah eventually gave permission to the Holy Prophet to see upon him um, when Islam was in its infancy, the right to defend themselves. And I stressed the word defend. Yeah. So if you um, are saying from a physical perspective, does a Muslim man or woman or community have the right to defend themselves? The answer is yes. We have every right under the freedom of speech on the freedom of human rights in Europe, anywhere in the world, should be that way. I have a right as a man, if I'm being physically attacked, to eventually say, I'm not going to allow you to physically hurt my family, my children, uh, my community. Yes, defense is allowed, and it's correct measurement of defense. There's a difference between defense and then offensive, violence, hurting another human being. So I think you do have the right to defend yourself. But again, I would stress that the principle of the Qur'an, which is consistently written through the whole Qur'an, is patience and prayer. And our beloved Imam, Hazrat Khalifa Tunmisi Al-Khamas, the Al-Khabinatul Aziz, may Allah be his helper, has consistently told us to be patient and to show patience and exercise patience. 
and and that's what we have to do because uh, he knows that if if we don't continue that principle of Islam of patience, it can turn to another level of something else. Um, and then, for example, if you have an, a Muslim and then particularly an Ahmadi Muslim, let's say, who has a, who has now really worn down, being worn down by people, and then he turns around and starts beating and hurting other uh, people. Uh, physically damaging very badly, let's say, hurting them badly, what will be the benefit of that? Other than the, the, he will be accused of, again, typically being a Muslim who has become violent and hurt another human being. Uh, unfortunately, that's the sadness of this, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas a right extremist will get away with physically hurting a Muslim, beating them badly, tro- or throwing a petrol bomb in their mosque, or or, or anything like that, and it'll be looked upon as, um, you know, yes, of course, there'll be certain countries who will condemn it, but there'll be many other countries who just keep quiet about it. Um, yeah. But in Islam, we have, to be, we have to do better than that. We absolutely do. Thank you so very much, Ibrahim Nuna, Imam Ibrahim Nuna, for joining us uh, all the way from Ireland. It's always a pleasure to speak to you. Have you done your 10K yet? I'll be going out shortly. Okay, all the best with that. Enjoy. <laughs> Thank you very much. So that was Wa alaikum assalam, peace and blessings of Allah be with you. So that was Imam Ibrahim Noonan, um, an Imam of the MD Muslim community in Ireland, talking to us about Islamic teachings around protesting, what's the right way of protest, what does freedom of speech really mean in Islam, and, and, and really uh, went into a lot of depth to, and to, um, to explain this very, very important topic. We shall now take a quick break and when we come back, we will just wrap up this segment about the correct way, the right way of protesting in Islam. Please do stay tuned. to the Voice of Islam Radio. The Promised Messiah, peace be on him, founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community in Islam states, Sin, which indeed is a poison, is born when a man is wanting in obedience to God and is empty of his love and his affectionate remembrance. The fate of a man whose heart has become cold to the love of God is like that of an uprooted tree, no longer capable of drawing the sap of life from the soil. As such, a tree gradually withers and dies. So like the dryness of the tree, sin overwhelms the heart. The remedy for this state of dryness, according to the law of nature, is of three types. 
Number one, love. Number two, istighfar. That is, seeking forgiveness of Allah. It literally means a desire to bury or to cover, reminding one that as long as the root of the tree is buried in the soil, it can hope to bring forth green foliage. Number three, the third remedy is tawba, which means to turn towards God in all humility, drawing the sap of life and to bring oneself closer to Him, to break loose with the help of righteous deeds from the enveloping cover of sinfulness. Tawbah cannot be achieved merely by word of mouth. In fact, Tawbah can be perfected only with the help of righteous deeds. All acts of goodness are aimed at achieving perfection of Tawbah. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. We have been talking uh, over the last 45 minutes or so about the right way of protesting in Islam. To wrap up this topic, I shall um, recite uh, the. Uh, the translation of two verses of the Holy Quran uh, to make uh, to amply make the point that we've been trying to make about peaceful pro- protest that Islam allows. So in chapter 60, verse 7, Allah states, Surely there is a good example in them for you, for all who have hope in Allah and the last day, and whosoever turns away, Truly Allah is self-sufficient, worthy of all praise. It may be that Allah will bring about love between you and those of them with whom you are now at enmity. And Allah is all-powerful and Allah is most forgiving, merciful. And the second verse is from chapter 41, verse 35, in which Allah states, And good and evil are not alike. Repel evil with that which is best. And lo, he between whom and thyself was enmity will become as though he were a warm friend. Once again, that's chapter 41, verse 35. So how has the Ahmadiyya Muslim community been responding to acts of desecration and Islamophobic acts over the last few years? When European cartoonists and satirists insulted Holy Prophet by peace and blessings of Allah be upon uh, upon him, the Ahmadiyya Muslim community held many lectures and events showcasing the blessed character of the Holy Prophet may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. One such cartoonist publicly repented his acts as a result of that. This shows that the best form of protest is not in the street, but working with the hearts of the people, trying to change, convert the hearts of the people. The Promised Messiah, the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, 
wrote, The religion that can easily establish its truth and superiority by sound intellectual arguments, heavenly signs, or other reliable testimony, does not need the sword to threaten men and force a confession of its truth from them. Religion is worth the name only as long as it is in consonance with reason. If it fails to satisfy that requisite, if it has to make up for its discomfiture in argument by handling the sword, it needs no other argument for its falsification. The sword it wields cuts its own throat before reaching others. If it be objected that the sword was resorted to by early Islam and hence the legality of jihad, we say the objection is based upon ignorance of early Islamic circumstances. Islam never allowed the use of sword for spreading the faith. On the other hand, it strictly prohibits compulsion in matters of faith. It has the plain injunction, there should be no compulsion in religion. Why was the sword taken in hand then? The circumstances under which this measure has been resorted have nothing to do with the spread of religion. They are connected with the pres preservation of life. And with those wise words, we will end the show today. Thank you very much for joining us. I must thank our producer, Farva Mubashar, our researcher, Saira, Sean Zevajia, and Ruxana. Excellent tech support from Mr. Tahir Ahmed in the tech room, as well as my fellow presenter, Imam Usman Manan. We shall be back with another live edition of The Breakfast Show next Monday. Until then, Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Voice of Islam Radio. Writings of the Promised Messiah, alayhi Then arise and repent and win the pleasure of God through good works. Remember that the punishment of wrong beliefs is after death. Being a Hindu or a Christian or a Muslim will be determined on the day of judgment. But a person who goes beyond the limit and wrongdoing transgression, disobedience, and vice is punished in this life. Such a one cannot escape God's chastisement. So hasten to win God's pleasure, and before the dreadful day arrives, namely the day of intensity, 
of the plague of which the prophets have warned. Make your peace with God. He is very benevolent. To the one moment of the repentance that melts the heart, He can forgive the sins spread over 70 years. Do not say that repentance is not accepted. Remember that you cannot be saved by your deeds. It is grace that saves and not deeds. Benevolent and merciful Lord, bestow thy grace upon all of us. We are thy servants and have fallen down upon thy threshold. Amen.